I gotta say it's Um Ali. The the dessert itself, Um Ali, is a bread pudding. Uh, it's used as a type of a very flaky bread, uh, bread that is traditional in Egypt and was there since you know very early medieval times. I mean, I love the the dramatic obsession, you know, with the the whole uh, jealousy. Uh, love triangle and the femme fatale figure and it really ends up with this bloody uh, story uh, more bloody legend really hi and welcome to episode 9 of instant coffee first of all we want to thank you for your responses to our call out for this episode It was great to chat to you all and to hear your wonderful memories and stories of dishes from your regions. And we're excited to be able to include them. So keep an ear out for your stories dotted throughout our conversation. So Nadine, I have a story about a food name that I want to share with you. I don't think I've said it to you before. Okay, go for it. So the dish is called Laban Emmo. Have you tried it before? I haven't, no. Okay, so let me try to explain it to you. It's basically a stew um, of tangy yogurt with pieces of meat in it. And Laban Emmo in Arabic translates to um, his mother's milk, which basically, it's a very, it's quite a... It's quite a gruesome story. <laughs> it's not really a story, but a name. And that's because it's pieces of meat, of a calf, that's basically swimming in the milk of his mother. I love this recipe. I, actually, it's one of my favorite recipes. But then when I heard the name, it kind of made me feel a bit sick. Right. Well, on that note, let's move <laughs> to introducing our guest, Salma Sari. Salma is a food researcher and filmmaker. She is founder of Sufra Kitchen, uh, and her story with food started very early on in her childhood. My story with food really starts pretty early. And I remember um, just recently I was in Amman uh, looking for some uh, old uh, cookbooks. And I was in a uh, warehouse of some uh, old library bookstore that used to be there. Uh, sadly, it's not. But the owner um, was kind enough to let us into the warehouse and try to hunt down old vintage books and stuff. So I stumbled upon this cookbook and it looked really familiar. It was from 1996. And I looked through it and I realized that that was my very first cookbook that I had when I was almost eight years old. And I never realized that I had a cookbook when I was that young. But I do remember growing this really close, just liking to food stories and why we eat certain things and how they became to be, how they're different from one house to another in my family. And slowly, you know, when I was uh, growing up doing my studies at mass communication and film, I realized that I'm just attracted to covering more stories and doing more narrative films even that have food as a very central element to it. A couple of years ago, Salma started doing more in-depth research into the history of food. She had realized the massive need to document and archive the rich culture and history of food and foodways in the Swana region. And this is where Sufra Kitchen was born. Uh, I grew up eating foods and dishes from all over the world, really. And my idea of national cuisine was really questioned and kind of challenged very early on. And I realized that really the richness lies in how food is connected and how it connects us to each other. And so I suppose Sufra as a project, Sufra Kitchen, 
on Instagram was born out of the need to really look into these connections and ask questions, but also share uh, information as a researcher and try to document and archive as much as possible. Utilizing the Arabic dictionary is another important research method for Salma. Sometimes the root of a food's name is actually linked to a verb, helping us understand how a dish is prepared or describing the main technique used to create the food. Like therada, the verb therada, to break uh, or uh, break into little pieces or uh, really crush, uh, became uh, used as the root uh, verb for the dish therid. Therid is very popular within the Arabic and the Bedouin cultures in uh, the Arabian Peninsula, but also in parts of North Africa. We've got the verb kamara, uh, which means to cover. And from there, the dish uh, makmur uh, became, came to be. And the verb samata is so interesting. Samata means to dip in boiling water. And uh, in the dictionary, it gives an example of how you dip um, a fresh uh, cutlet of meat to just really sanitize it. And then the word or the name, the, the dish samit, the, the, the baked uh, Turkish samit is very interesting in how to make samit and the specific technique is required is to dip the, the piece of dough into boiling water before you uh, bake it. And this is really interesting in how even the word that, I mean, we associate samit now as something that is Turkish and not necessarily Arabic, but the fact that the name of the, of the dish itself has uh, roots in Arabic language and Arabic verb that is so specific to its technique really, you know, raises some questions. Dishes were also named according to what they looked like or how they were presented. Like the ma'luba, for instance, or the makhluta, mabruma, these were all medieval dishes. And some of them were really poetic. Like one of them is called narjasiya, uh, named after in reference to the daffodil flower. Because it's essentially a dish of uh, sunny-side-up eggs that look like the yellow heart of the flower. It's really pretty. And uh, they also tell us of the origins of the word, of the origin of the, of the dish, like uh, some medieval dishes called shirazeya or uh, halabeya. And of course, there were a lot of people who decided to name dishes after themselves or there were dishes that were named after them. So we've got the famous muhallabiyya, for instance. Muhallabiyya is the pudding, rice pudding or a starch pudding. And it was named after Muhallab ibn Abi Sufra, uh, who was an Umayyad general and the governor of, uh, of Iraq, I believe. And there was a name, uh, a dish that was named specifically after Harun al-Rashid uh, called Haruniya, which was a stew. And his half-brother, who was a massive gourmand was called uh, Ibrahim al-Mahdi. Uh, and Ibrahim al-Mahdi had his own version of a stew called Ibrahimiyya also that was mentioned in medieval cookbooks. The first story we wanted to share was sent to us by Mahmoud Arif. He tells us about his love of mulkhiyya, a dish made from truth leaves. And the Levant is prepared with shredded chicken and served over rice. And in Egypt, it's more like a soupy consistency and served with bread. My mom loves making mulukhiyya, but whenever we get non-Egyptian guests come over and they're shocked at this green soup, my dad needs to tell them that this dish was actually named mulukhiyya, which means royalty, 
And the story behind this is that during the Fatimid era in Egypt, there was a ruler named Mu'azlidinillah, and he was unwell once, and then this doctor prescribed Munuhiyat for him, and he got better. So he decided, okay, this works. I can't have the public consume this. So he decided to rename it Mulukiya and decided that only royalty can grow and can consume Mulukiya. This stayed on until the next ruler, Hakim Amrillah, and uh, the story is that he had Mulukiya served to him, but then the Sheikh accidentally poured it on his feet and it burnt him. So he's like, that's it. The public can have Mulukiya. It's not Mulukiya anymore. Iran Sayyid Raisi, an LSE alumna, sent us the story behind Mirza Ghasimi, a famous dish from the region of Gilan, where she is from. Iran also told us that in 2015, Rasht, the capital city of the province of Gilan, was also recognised as a creative city of gastronomy by UNESCO. Mirza Ghasimi. It's a dish from Gilan, in the north of Iran and on the coast of the Caspian Sea. Mirza Ghasemi is made with eggplants, tomatoes, eggs, and garlic. Generally speaking, Iranian dishes, which are named after people, are only a hundred or so years old. And Mirza Ghasemi is no exception. Mirza was a noble title for men in Iran. And Ghasem or Ghasemi, meaning of Ghasem, is a name for men. The dish is indeed named after the man who came up with it, Muhammad Ghasem Khan. Around 1860, following appointments in the Russian Empire, Muhammad Ghasem Khan was appointed by Nasreddin Shah Qajar as the governor of Gilan. He is thought to be very fond of cooking and often experimented with different ingredients in his kitchen. One of his experiments gave us Mirza Ghasemi, a dish that Gilan is famous for. It is thought that the dish's popularity, beyond its delicious taste, is due to its affordability, fast cooking and wholesomeness, much needed at the time as there were periods of food shortage. Rusayla Bazlamit is an academic based in Melbourne. She is also a baker and runs a blog called Taboon Bakery. She tells us the Palestinian story behind the name of sage in Arabic, or Maramiya. So my Palestinian grandmother used to tell us the origin of the naming for sage. And sage is one of the most popular herbs used in Palestine and in Jordan. So sage in Arabic is called Maramiya, or sometimes in Palestine they call it Mariamiya. And that is in relation to... Sitna uh, Maryam or Virgin Mary and it is believed that this plant has sprouted after uh, Virgin Mary gave birth and um, the plant or the herb sage Maramiya was meant to help with um, her pain uh, after giving birth and since then Palestinians and in Jordan as well they use Maramiya women use Maramiya when they are on their monthly cycle, and it is meant to help with uh, the pain that they are feeling. So we've got all these names and feel-good stories, and a lot of this information has been passed down orally with very little written evidence. So is anything actually grounded in reality? And more importantly, does it even matter? 
So sometimes as a researcher, I look back and try to see if these stories are supported by facts, things that have been recorded uh, or mentioned in history, whether in literature, in historians' accounts, in, um, uh, you know, uh, travelers' accounts, geographers. Sometimes you find the most <laughs> random places. You find these sto stories in the most random places in history. But um, oftentimes and most of the time, imagination really has a lot to do one example of a dish name based on a folk story is Harasbao, which translates to burnt fingers. It is a traditional stew from the Levant, cooked differently depending on the region. Rawan Daisa told us a couple of stories she's heard about the origin of the name. Harasbao is a dish described as farmer's food or poor people food because its main ingredients are bread and lentils. I know that people from Iqlim al-Kharoub and from South Lebanon more generally cook it. I don't know if other regions also have a variation of the dish. There are two stories behind the name. The first said that because women spent so long stirring it, they burned their fingers. Another story goes that once a man went into the kitchen to see what his wife was preparing, but she wasn't there. So he opened the pot and tried to taste it, but burnt his finger. And this is where burnt finger comes from. Another dish that carries centuries of history in its name is khina, a Moroccan Jewish Shabbat recipe. My name is Raja and I'm from Meknas, Morocco. My city used to host a large Jewish community in two Jewish neighborhoods known as the Old and New Millah. My mom was exposed to the Jewish tradition through her friend and haute couture teacher, Madame Regine. She used to tell me stories about how Madame Regine was keen on preserving Moroccan Jewish traditions. One of those traditions is the Shabbat dish, Sechina. The name Sechina comes from an Arabic root word which means hot. This traditional dish and the way it is prepared makes it possible to be eaten still hot without having to violate the ban on lighting fire on Shabbat. It is prepared on Friday afternoon, it cooks overnight from Friday to Saturday, and is eaten for lunch on Saturday. Friday used to be a day of grand labor in Jewish households. The women wake up at sunrise to make all the preparations for Shabbat. They bake bread for two days, clean and tidy up the house, then they prepare all of the meals for Saturday. They start making sechina around noon. The dish is basically made of eggs, potatoes, rice, chickpeas, and meat. Depending on circumstances and the number of guests, one or more ingredients is added. On festive occasions, stuffed chicken, dates, calf's feet, and tongue are added. And following the Moroccan tradition of mixing sweet and sour, two types of stuffing are added. The sweet stuffing is made of sweet potatoes, almonds, and dried raisins. The savory stuffing is made of rice and minced meat. The dish is seasoned using herbs and spices such as parsley, cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg. Women used to prepare it in earthenware pots, which were hermetically sealed and then cooked over a very low flame at home or at the neighborhood baker's oven, where it cooks over tiny pieces of coal that are close to extinguishing, making the cooking process slow. Preparation hardly changed since the old days, only the cooking mode changed. At least at the time when my mom's friend lived in Meknes, Sechina was of great symbolic value to the Moroccan Jewish community. Women put all their culinary talents into it, and the result was an exquisite mixture of 
flavors, perfumes, and colors. It's not just the dish names, but also, you know, ingredients, um, you know, and, and, and myths and folk uh, stories uh, have a lot to do with it. Um, taking eggplant, for example. So with the word Badenjan, a lot of people associate it with Bayd al-Jan, the egg of jinn. And when I tried to look into its history and etymology, a little bit of its origin, it turns out that the word Badenjan in Arabic originally has its root in Sanskrit, Indian. And the word is Vatan Ghana. Uh, Vatan comes from wind. Uh, Ghana comes from expelling because of its medicinal properties of expelling wind in the body. So in reality, the word has nothing to do with bed or, or jinn, or even, you know, the folk beliefs that have been documented in 19th century that I came across in Egypt, where um, there was uh, a belief that eating eggplants during the summer season, which is the season of eggplant, promotes madness and hallucinations. And it's not far off from the misconceptions about eggplant that has been uh, that was that was new to Europe in the 15th and 14th century, where it was also thought to you know uh, induce hallucinations and madness, so an irrational behavior. So really, eggplant is just a perfect example of this movement of myths and culture and and language, and it's all in the food name. Salma talked to us about a boomerang effect. Just like a boomerang, recipes travel across the world from the Middle East. They are integrated into local cuisines and languages, and their names change. When they find their way back to the region, they return as an updated version of the original dish. So the word badanjan was borrowed or has roots in the ancient Sanskrit, and it traveled to Persia, and from Persia to the Arab world, and then the Arabs, through ways of trade and also um, colonization of Spain, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, the word Badenjan became El Badenjan, and from there became Aubergine, which is uh, the French word for uh, for that. And we've got the Spanish word, I believe, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it, it's very close to Berenjal which is also very close to Bedinjan. And Berinjal, then from, from Spanish and the very close Brinjal in Portuguese, was moved back when Portugal uh, colonized parts of India. And then it became known there as Brinjal and not Batanjana, the original Sanskrit word. <laughs> so it's really, again, this huge, massive boomerang effect in this case, again back and forth movement of words and the changes that happen in between is just really something so interesting to me and the relationship of language in general to food. Um, so an example that caught my attention was how Rahat uh, al-Halqum or Turkish Lukum uh, was named initially in Arabic, Rahat al-Halqum, which, which means the comfort of the throat. It was named so because of its medicinal uh, purposes. Uh, it was something that really relieves um, the throat and the digestive system after eating. And it was after 
the Ottoman rule here in the region that the word Rahat al-Hulqum in Arabic became uh, Turkified and changed into Lukum uh, from Hulqum. You know, now it's known all around the world as Turkish Lukums. Even here, where, you know, we speak Arabic, a lot of people know it as Lukum and not Rahat al-Hulqum. What became clear from our conversation with Salma is that learning about the history of food breaks down rigid nationalistic claims to dishes. These stories and histories reveal an intertwined relationship of people from different ethnicities and cultures who came into contact with one another through trade, war, or even the Hajj pilgrimage. So Kushari, I was so surprised to see it uh, just a couple of weeks ago in uh, an old cookbook from Iraq in the 1960s, and it was mentioned as Kushri, right? And it's immediately linked to what I know of um, the Kijri in Afghanistan and India as well, which is it does not use lentils, but beans with rice. Uh, India also with the British uh, mandate, uh, uh, Egypt at the time also had it through that because it was not uh, mentioned or I was not able to find any uh, sources that mention kushari before that, before you know, early uh, 20th century. There are some references though uh, for late, like before earlier, uh, but it's it links it to the Hejaz also, the Hejaz area. So the movement of the Hajj is also another theory, the movement of Egyptians and Hajj, and maybe they met there with the, they encountered the, the Indian kichri. Um, so that's another theory. It's really interesting in how, you know, we think we, we hold so hard to this notions of national cuisines that it just belongs to us or it just belongs to one nation or one society when, uh, history really proves and language, history and language prove otherwise. Sergen Bahçeşi sent us a story about Gleftiko, which is popular in Cyprus among both Greek and Turkish Cypriots. Sergen is a PhD candidate of anthropology at LSE, and he has been doing fieldwork in Cyprus, discovering a number of food stories that bring up the history and politics of the country. So Gleftigo is a lamb roast that is cooked in large clay ovens over, I think, about uh, eight, nine hours. It is usually served along with potatoes and rice, and it is usually cooked for special occasions or consumed with the extended family over the weekends. And this is mostly done in villages. And in Cyprus, the dish is popular among both Turkish and Greek Cypriots, and I think the word kleftigo means stolen meat in Greek. Uh, this is because I think the dish is believed to have been popular among herd traders who would steal a lamb or sheep and cook it in a large pit in the ground overnight in order to avoid being seen by others. I think the Greek name also refers to the clefts, uh, who are, I think, thieves, who fought against the Ottoman Empire in Greece and Crete. Turkish Cypriots ref- refer to it as uh, gleftigo as well, uh, but it is also called oven kebab or juicy kebab uh, because the meat is usually uh, quite juicy when, it's, when it comes out of the oven. Finally, we had to ask Salma about her favourite food story and the famous Omali, who a lot of you had mentioned, came up. I mean, I love the, the dramatic obsession, you know, with the, the whole uh, jealousy uh, love triangle and the femme fatale figure and it really ends up with this bloody uh, story uh, more bloody legend really but it's just you, you know it reflects so much about how 
we as an Egyptians just love drama. So it's it's really for those who don't know. So it's it all takes place in the 13th century, and uh, the the dessert itself, Um Ali, is a bread pudding. Uh, it uses a type of a very flaky bread uh, bread that is traditional in Egypt and was there since you know very early medieval times. And then it's cooked uh, in the oven with milk and cream and nuts and drizzled with some honey on top if you like and it's really really delicious and it's really ubiquitous in all celebrations until this day but the legend has it that Shajar al-Dur um, a sultana uh, of the last you know Ayyubid uh, times uh, who was actually the wife of uh, the Ayyubid sultan Salih Ayyub uh, the last of the Ayyubid sultans actually she got remarried after his death to a certain Azuddin Aybak, who in this case was the first of the Mamluks and sultans. And uh, she got really jealous when he himself got remarried. And uh, legend has it that she plotted to kill him. And he died. And so Azuddin Aybak, the deceased, first wife, got extremely mad that her husband uh, got killed by Shajar al-Dur and she really plotted revenge on her life and she just took her life away and killed Shajar al-Dur. And that's one story or one variation of the story. There's so many, of course, as, as you know, the, the different complicated marriages allows. And so... Because she was, uh, Um Ali is the first wife of Azuddin Aybak who died. She got so happy that, you know, Shajar al uh was killed and uh, she decided to, um, you know, give out and open up her kitchens to all the public and give out this dessert in celebration of uh, the death of Shajar al the evil femme fatale. Thank you for tuning in to Instant Coffee, the podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre and produced by me, Libal Seman Haider. And me, Nadine Almanasfi. We'd like to thank Mahmoud, Iran, Rusayla, Rawan, Raja and Sargan for sending their stories in. We were pleasantly surprised to see that people from all over the place, Melbourne to Istanbul and Meknes, followed our podcast. To learn more about Salma's work, follow the links in the podcast description. We'll be back in two weeks for our 10th and final episode of this season's Instant Coffee, so you don't want to miss it. 